Whether you're a polyamateur or polyambitious, polyambiguous or polyam, I really hold your head high. Let your freaky flag fly, cause your polyamory should be uncensored. Hi there, and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored, a podcast where we, your hosts, Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams, interview a poly person each episode, and we try to answer the five points of journalism. Who, what, when, where, and why, as it pertains to our poly lives. Hi there, and you are listening to episode 80, where we chat with Claire today. Stay tuned as we delve into the good, the bad, the ugly, and the just plain complicated truths about our poly lives. All right, so Claire, who are you? Hi, um, my name is Claire Louise Travers. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a queer, so polyamorous relationship anarchist. Say that seven times fast. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I'm the, the owner of Polypages, which is a podcast and platform that I founded about four years ago now. Um, and yeah, I'm just really excited to come on and chat with you finally. I know you had my colleague, um, Krista, on in episode 78. Uh, to discuss our book club and uh, I loved the episode so much like you did such a great job so I'm really excited to sit down with you oh good awesome um, thanks for agreeing to come and join us of course anytime <laughs> you talked a little bit about how you identify but are there any other labels that you particularly like to use or, or identifying things that you want to clarify um, I think the other kind of important labels and important for listeners to know is the places of privilege that I come from. So um, this is something that um, actually Jess from another podcast did, and I loved the format, and now I'm like, I'm going to use it all the time. <laughs> um, so it's important for people to know that I'm coming from a place of white privilege. Um, I am disabled. I'm actually hard of hearing. I'm um, practically deaf at this point, um, which is an odd thing to be and also to also be a podcaster. I will admit that. It's a bit strange. <laughs> um, I use the label queer as sort of a, an umbrella term for bisexual, pansexual and polyamory in an anti-mononormative sense and therefore a queering of how relationships can be done. Um, but I've definitely much more gravitated towards a relationship anarchist position in like the last couple of years, I would say. Um, and in fact, Chloe Pages recently put out their like mission and vision and value statements. And it came from a very anti-mononormative place. It came from like a very relationship anarchist place. So I don't know, maybe I should be changing the name. <laughs> but, um, but polyamory is still a great umbrella for me to use um, because it defines my identity. And it can also be used to, you know, explain my relationships. It kind of like works in a, in a really flexible way. Mononormative is a really interesting word. I don't think I have heard that used very often before. And I love it. But and it's so clear. But it's also mm. like, oh, interesting. And so yeah. pervasive, right? Like that is just the normative. And so, so often it just we take for granted that like, well, it's not normal for everyone. <laughs> it's right. not me. So I like to equate it with heteronormativity, which is obviously where it came from. It's actually coined by Dr. Eli Sheff. Um, nice. I know. Very <laughs> cool. Um, and, you know, it, it's this idea that we live in a social structure that values and prioritizes monogamous 
understandings of relationships over others in many ways, in, including conferring couples privilege onto couples, uh, even in polyamorous spaces. So just like uh, you can benefit from a place of privilege even while subverting it. Um, and I just really like this label. In fact, it's something that I use so often now that I forget that other people don't use it as quickly as me. <laughs> Sure. But it's definitely like a helpful thing and it's it's going to be the focus of, of some of the upcoming projects that I have as well. So um, I'm, I'm seeing it more and more being used. I think when Eli uh, coined it, there was obviously like a lexical gap that it immediately filled, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some people call it monocentrism, uh, but I prefer mononormativity. Yeah, I, I had read recently um, that, you know, like heterocentrism, the difference being between heterocentrism and heteronormativity is just the assumption that everyone around you is also heterosexual. Um, and I think that monocentrism makes a lot of sense too. like the just assumption that, oh, you're in a, a like normal, quote unquote, um, presenting partnership that's probably monogamous. And we're just going to assume that everyone's monogamous. And honestly, I do the same thing. Like I'm I've been polyamorous my entire, I want to say relationship career. That's not right. Um, You know, (laughs) relationship life since I was 20. And so, um, and other than the people in my community and most of the people I hang out with, if I'm just meeting like another parent at my daughter's school, I'm going to assume they're probably monogamous because I guess I don't want to make that assumption. Right. But yeah, it would be nice to just have a more open, like, well, I'm not going to make any assumptions. I don't know this person <laughs> like, um, and have more people assume uh, or make less assumptions about people they don't know until they communicate with them and ask. Mm-hmm. Right. Or even testing out, experimenting with the assumptions that you're making and challenging the assumptions that you're making. Right. Um, uh, one of my partners is a huge fan of the author, Brandon Sanderson, and Um, he sent me a podcast about queering of the Cosmere, which is what Sanderson fans call uh, the sort of universe in which he writes. And I literally had not previously thought about imagining characters that are presented in heterosexual relationships as being queer characters And it was so much fun to think about that in the context of other stuff that I read. It was just sort of like a delightful imaginative exercise. And like, I've been queer a long time. (laughs) So that this had never occurred to me is like, just goes to show how strong the hegemonic discourse of heteronormativity is. And that is also the case of mononormativity. And I love the idea of really trying to look for opportunities to imagine things differently. Right. I think that's really important. And it kind of it kind of reminds me of when I was younger, heteronormativity would dictate that if you were a cisgendered woman, then you would have a husband. And there was never like, a, oh, do you have a partner? Whereas now I hear people say, oh, it's your partner joining us if you don't know the gender a, a lot more like easily. And I think it's, oh, I hope it's going to be 
in the future I'll be like, oh, your partner, but it's not assumed that this is your only partner or there is space given for you to give a descriptive label that fits that relationship at that time. And also there's this understanding that relationships are dynamic, which is something that I really like out of relationship anarchy and that monogamy doesn't really allow for, right? In, mon- in monogamy, you get on the relationship escalator, <laughs> another great uh, tool for discussing this, uh, and you go up the escalator and there is there really isn't like a... Uh, an option to come back down. That's why it's an escalator, right? You have to keep going up. Whereas um, when we're looking at it from a relationship anarchist point of view, I try to allow there to be like a dynamism in the relationships. So if this is the partner that you're calling primary at one point, it it could change. You might, the next time you meet, be like, oh, my friend is joining. And there is never like raised eyebrows or issues. And that's like one of the little things that I do to try and like deconstruct mononormativity and take the couple's privilege out of my day-to-day life in like these fun ways that probably no one else notices. <laughs> it's just me being weird. <laughs> no, I actually totally do that. And I will refer to partners as friends all the time. And, and people will literally like stop the conversation and be like, but I thought you guys were dating. And I'm like, oh no, we are. And they're like, I don't understand. <laughs> so, but it's nice to be able to like bring up a conversation and be like, oh, well, you know, I, they're also a good friend of mine. Um, so I refer to them as both. And you know, like at least in that particular relationship, labels aren't super like hard and fast and even necessary. So they're also a really good friend. And they're like, oh, okay, all right, I'm I'm getting on board. And I don't know. I mean, it is it is nice, but it can be confusing, of course, right? Like some folks are really put off by, well, aren't you offending your partner if you're calling them a friend? It's like I don't know. I mean, do they not want to be my friend? I I guess I. I guess that's a conversation for every particular relationship, but for a lot of relationship anarchists, friends are, is a valid and important uh, level to be at. So calling someone a friend is not a, I don't know, like it doesn't put them down a peg or two or whatever, you know, it's not, it's not downgrading the relationship. Friendship is also really important. Yeah. I mean, friendship is a relationship. Yeah. End of. Um, and I think that when we start to think about our friendships in that way, we can put the intentional skills that people talk about when they're talking about polyamory, which is a very like skill-focused culture at the moment. We can think about applying those skills into our friendships. And like I tell my friends that I love them all the time. For me, the friend, the friends that I have are incredibly important. Um, and if if I wasn't solo polyamorous, I'd probably be with a friend that I have you know, or multiple friends that I have. Um, but again, under, you know, mononormativity, it is, it is normal that you would prioritize a one sexual intimate relationship that is romantic over others and even at the expense of others, right? It's almost expected that if your wife doesn't get on with your friend, uh, then there's at least friction and you should probably take your wife's side. Or if your husband doesn't get on with your male friend especially if you're if you're a cisgender woman this is like a common theme (laughs) in books Mm -hmm. in movies and series like I don't like you hanging out with your friend that happens to be cis male and I would like you to stop and people do and this has always been like completely confusing for me because I've always thought of my friends as being very important and if you can't be friends with somebody then what like what is there that is that that's being added in a way, um, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I would require 
everyone to be friends because I'm not like that. <laughs> That's not what I was saying. But it's this idea that there is a de facto hierarchy that I just I cannot stand it. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. so annoying. <laughs> and it definitely also plays into the heteronormativity and the mononormativity. Like for a long time. So I was married to a woman for 11 years. And during that time, when I was friends with heterosexual women, they were perfectly comfortable being around either me or my partner. And they were comfortable with their husbands being around either me or my partner. But they had a very strongly different feeling about the idea of their husbands being friends with straight women. And like it really was radically different in their minds. And I it was I just found it so bewildering that 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 somehow that would be different. Like, no, people can be friends and it doesn't really have anything to do with what their genitals look like. I mean, for crying out loud. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's such an interesting phenomenon and it's so pervasive culturally. Anyway, we completely derailed on our very first question. Yeah, I know. But I loved it. And now I'm like sitting over here thinking, being like, this is great. This is so good. These are all very good points. There's another very helpful terminology that might be good to throw in here, which is a matter normativity, which is the normalization of romance into like a bunch of shoulds. And I think that's what you touched on there, Katie. It's like the part of romance, part of love is this idea that you have to give up, uh, forego, compromise. Um, and part of a matter of normativity is also this idea that, that that should be the thing that you want. So if you have friends that are platonic and of the opposite gender and, and you are heteronormative, then you should want them to not be friends. Uh, well, you should want to have a sexual romantic connection with them, even if that sacrifices the friendship. That makes sense. Yeah, it's so weird. Yeah. Mm. These are all great points. I love it. (laughs) Well, and I mean, kind of along these lines, um, our next question is, what does polyamory mean to you? And I know we've kind of touched on like how relationship anarchy or what relationship anarchy means to you, but like, what does polyamory mean to you? So a while ago, I, I wrote an essay about the two definitions of polyamory that I see after being nearly a decade in this community and making content and having experiences that people would call polyamorous. And in this essay, I made a distinction between polyamorous as a relationship descriptor, which I think we are all very familiar with. It might even be the dominant one, which is this idea that polyamory is when you have multiple loving concurrent relationships. And then there is a secondary definition or a Another definition, I don't know if you'd call it secondary, which defines the ability to love multiple people simultaneously. I think the nuance there is very important because one of the things that happened to me in the last year was I lost all of my relationships, like in about the space of three months. It was devastating. And I had people come to to me and say, who are polyamorous? Like other polyamorous people saying, well, you're not polyamorous anymore because you're not in these relationships. And I, I mean, Pardon I me, know, fuck them. <laughs> I know exactly fuck them. <laughs> I, I know what I'm about. So that's exactly what I said, but it made me think like these are, this particular account was one that had like a large following. And I was like, is this, is this, 
a common thought that once you are single or you're not dating or you're choosing to stop romantic uh, relationships that you're suddenly not polyamorous anymore? Mm-mm. Like, no, that's not it. So for me, polyamory is about my ability to love multiple people. It is an identity. I believe it is something that I have been, uh, I mean, I suppose you can cultivate it, but for me, it feels like a very natural way of understanding uh, like all relationships generally. I can obviously love my friends. And if I have another friend that I love, I don't love less. Um, I can love both my parents. I can love multiple siblings. You know, I have a lot of um, examples where I have loved lots of things at the same time concurrently. Um, And for me, that definition of polyamory is the one that I gravitate towards, especially now I am uh, not dating with the intention of having like a hierarchical or a nesting relationship and coming at it from a very solo polyamorous position, which is why my relationship to myself is the most important relationship that I have. So for me, this, this distinction, which I made in this essay, you know, it's, it's not that like I coined it. It's just a commentary on the thing that I'm seeing a lot in the spaces that I'm in. And I think it's a very helpful one because your relationship status should not dictate your, like you wouldn't expect the relationship status of a bisexual woman to dictate her sexuality. She's still bisexual, independent of the gender that she's choosing to date. Um, so why would you do the same polyamory? I bring that up a lot, actually, when folks... Um you know, question my polyamory. I mean, not anymore because I'm like dating four people now, but um, at one point I was only with my husband and at the time it was my fiance and they, um, we were coming out to his parents and they were like, well, do you have any other partners? And I said, no, not at the moment. Uh, And they're like, well, then why even call yourself poly? You're not poly. And then I was like, well, I'm only dating a guy, but I'm still bisexual. And they were like, what? (laughs) So I accidentally came You're out. Like, oops, I came out twice. Whoopsies. Yeah. So that was right. fun. That was funny. Um, it's like, well, yeah. you're not polyamorous if you're not dating multiple people. And I'm like, well, just because I'm currently not looking for romantic attachment doesn't make me any less capable of having multiple romantic attachments at the same time. Absolutely. Uh, like, just because you might be in a relationship that happens to be monogamous, it doesn't mean you're monogamous. It means you're dating one person. You know, that's it's ridiculous to conflate those things. Like, so if somebody breaks up with you, you're no longer poly, like no or monogamous. Like if you're single, you yeah. can't be monogamous. Then it's like, well, that right. doesn't make any sense either. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I definitely gravitate towards this identity based definition yeah, really for all of those reasons. <laughs> so what drew you to polyamory? Um, as I said, I think it's something that has always been a very innate understanding of how relationships can function i mean way back when i was like a teenager it was like oh you're not getting this need met by me go find someone to meet that need like it's not encroaching on my sense of who i am or my sense of importance or my self-worth um it was a very natural understanding that i i i feel like nothing has would be harder than me attempting to be monogamous and i have had a i have had one long-term monogamous relationship but even in that relationship, it was, I think, understood that this was an incredibly lucky situation where I was just like, oh, I, f- I feel very fulfilled. I was obviously growing a lot at the time and we were able to explore a lot. But that's um, you know, now not an expectation I hold in a relationship going in. So this one person will magically be everything that I need. <laughs> um, that feels like very 
very heavy. Like it feels really stressful. <laughs> and I've had to have this conversation so many times where I've, you know, been like, oh, I really like you. And then this person has immediately been like, oh, all of these, this stuff. And I have to be like, no, I, I like what's happening right now. And it's okay if this, you know, I'm not expecting you to grow and fill every need that I have. Um, but I think another part of, of polyamory um, that drew me in was uh, my work takes me to lots of different places. There's a lot of travel involved. Um, I work in humanitarian aid. And this happens to be a sector where I genuinely believe no one is doing monogamy. Like it's very, very rare because it's very stressful and you're always in a different place. And monogamy is, you know, it's a lot to expect somebody to hold over distance, over, you know, insecurity, uncertainty. Um, so for me, it was it was just like a very functional way of ordering my relationships and you know, spending time with this person if we were in the same country or the same airport or whatever. Um, and having relationships that were further afield but non-monogamous would allow me to remain in a, you know, in a relationship that made me feel like committed and secure in these things that were important to me at the time. So it had both a, a natural element but also a very functional element. I think it's a highly functional form of relationship organisation if you can do it. <laughs> Well, what are some things that you find difficult about polyamory or being ethically non-monogamous, if anything? So, yeah, <laughs> just um, so before I answer this, I kind of wanted to just say that I really try and reject this idea that polyamory is somehow innately harder than monogamy. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why I think that when we do that, we make it very difficult for people that are struggling in a, in a relationship that happens to be polyamorous to recognize tactics of abuse and toxic behaviors and patterns of harm because but some could like, well, polyamory is just hard. Like you just need, to, it's just really difficult. Like you just have to be uncomfortable. You have to walk through it. Um, and that's obviously very dangerous, but it also on the flip side of that means that we kind of have this idea that if, if you are doing polyamory for a long time, then you must be very good at relationships, which is also <laughs> not, not the case. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of reject this idea that there is anything that is especially difficult about polyamory if you're polyamorous. Right. If this is how you naturally want to organize your life and, and is something that you have access to the information about it. Like if, if, if it was a level playing field, it would not be more difficult. I think the things that are hard about polyamory are because it is in a culture that is mononormative. So things like breakups, which have happened to me, as I said last year, very hard to go through, kind of harder in polyamory. <laughs> because there's no social scripts about how people should support you during this time. There is no understanding about polyamorous breakups. There's no kind of, there's no form in, in our culture where you can be simultaneously in love and brokenhearted. It just doesn't exist. Um, and I, I, for me, that has been, I think, one of the most recent like hardships I've had to go through, but it would have been easier if we didn't have a, a highly mononormative uh, society because I would have had more support. I would have had people understand that, you know, I wasn't in a, I was in a place of great pain. I wasn't in space where I could readily explain and educate those around me. I needed them to understand. And though there isn't that basic understanding. Well, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but when did you know you were polyamorous? Oh my God. 
you know what? Hindsight's 2020. <laughs> 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 oh, we shouldn't use that phrase anymore, given how terrible 2020 uh, was. <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> hi, hindsight is way better than 2020. Um, you know, looking back, I, there, there was some early obvious signs. I had multiple crushes at the same time. I really couldn't understand why if someone was dating somebody else, they couldn't also date me, which led to um, lots of allegations of, you know, teenage drama of cheating or uh, even even though I'd very seldom act on it. But I think the, the, the first time I had a language for it was probably about nearly 10 years ago now when I was briefly engaged and I was being deployed. And so we were discussing how we were going to manage this. And at the time, House of Cards was on. This is right when Netflix House of Cards was really big. And the Underwoods had this open relationship, uh, probably the first time I'd really seen that on, you know, on, on a, a really, really big TV program. And so we we thought we'd give that a go. We'd have this 100-mile rule. We'd have an open relationship. And I think that was the first time I was introduced to the word polyamory. Now, I'm 31, which means that I am as old as the word polyamory. It was coined in 1990. Um, so obviously, it took me some time to find it. But as I said, I, looking back at the, all of the science for this being a very intuitive understanding of myself was were there very early. The same as, you know, being bisexual, I had crushes and relationships with uh, people across the gender spectrum, but it wasn't until I was a teenager that I found that there was a word for that. Yeah, that makes sense. Netflix is actually pretty great. On I like, there's somebody at Netflix corporate that is poly, or maybe they all are, because there are a ton of things now. Like Sense Eight is really lovely and poly and queer, mm-hmm. and yeah, House of Cards had like that blip of like, oh, there's like some bisexual threesomes happening and uh yeah like some obviously open relationships they're toxic horrible abusive people but you know it's <laughs> cool that they had open relationship uh, <laughs> i mean yeah. this is before we we knew all this about kevin's before we knew yeah, about this kevin the world Spacey. yeah uh, i'm sure hollywood knew about this before and because it always seems to be i was devastated by the way kevin spacey was one of my favorite actors before this yeah. came out so yeah there have uh, been quite a few actors who've been canceled and i'm like damn it I know I just liked you. (laughs) I can no longer form any kind of like trust in uh, a man based in LA ever again because it's like, is this a matter of time? It's a a ticking time bomb. Exactly. That's how I feel about it. I'm like, just don't, don't ruin Tom Hiddleston for me. He's the only one left. (laughs) He seems so great. Yeah. (laughs) So my fingers are crossed for him forever. (laughs) So this is a kind of question that goes in tandem with our last one, but when did you feel different from other people if you ever have? I genuinely thought this is how everyone understood relationships. (laughs) For the longest time, I couldn't understand. I thought that there was this drama that came from the media in, you know, love triangles and things like that. But I thought it was the same way that like in every high school on TV, everyone's dressed like a tiny lawyer. (laughs) <laughs> right. right i was like yeah it's just like it's just a hollywood thing like it's just a media thing it's just a new york thing it's i kept being like oh it's just that's just there for the spice it's not there because that's how people are it was really late in my life when i realized that this was not how how everyone felt and i still think that it is so married to cultures like it's so so 
um, heavily tied to cultural narratives that it would be hard for people to necessarily say, well, I, I want this because of culture. I want this because it's, it's what I genuinely like feel in my bones is right. Um, I mean, I don't know because I'm not monogamous, but I would imagine it'd be hard to disentangle those things. Um, I also think it's important to note that when I started uh, actively be like taking monogamy off of the table at the beginning of the dating scenario. I wasn't in the US. I wasn't in Europe. I was in a culture where I was already an outsider. So it was like, yeah, I suppose I might think differently, but it's, it's because I'm not from here, right? I'm operating in a language that's not my own. I'm operating in a cult that's not my own. Like I'm already the weird one. This was just part of it. And the learning across the cultural gap or barrier or whatever, of between the people I was dating and myself, this was just part of the, a very intricate and very varied tapestry of the things we had to learn about one another. So it never felt like there was this massive wall between me and anyone else that was just because of this polyamory. It was, it was always this, I'm sure this is how other people would think if they came from my shoes. And also I genuinely believe that more people think like this <laughs> than they let on. <laughs> um, so I don't think I can really look back and be like, that was the moment. I think it will be very hard for me to do, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> it makes me happy. So where are you in your poly journey? So at the moment I am solo polyamorous and I'm really loving this label. Uh, I do believe, as I've already said, that labels should be dynamic and they're only useful until they're not useful. So never feel like you're married to any of these. Um, but I'm really enjoying having... <laughs> so much free time my own space um i've spent like all of my 20s was spent on planes in airbnbs in hotels in refugee camps in someone else's flat it was very chaotic and i finally overcoming some of this internal stuff that i have about that chaos being healthy that chaos being good uh some of the trauma and i'm finding a lot of stability with myself so i've kind of gone through this period of time where i had um, lots of overlapping relationships and lots of nesting partners and um, a, a lot of collaboration with my romantic, intimate or sexual partners. I'm moving into a space where I am collaborating with people that are friends. I'm collaborating with people that are colleagues. I'm, I'm making community without the romance. And I think that is really important for us to see because we see so much hypersexualized polyamory which is great. I love sexual polyamory. I'm a very sexual person. But it's important to know there's a, there are other ways that you can interpret this label and there are other ways that you can action it. Um, and that's currently what I'm doing. The label solar polyamory is a great umbrella for that. But it does make me sound more selfish than it actually translates to. So the polyamory isn't someone that operates as an island and does nothing with other people and, and it's, it's essentially a very self-focused person so the polyamory just means that the relationships that you're forming are you know with yourself and that has to be interpreted through relationships with others so i really enjoy building poly pages out building community uh taking part in these events and these pro projects and collaborating with uh krista and l and like the other people on the on the team um it's been really important it's been really great and it's been very different. 
So I think that's where I'm at at the moment. I don't know if there's a linear journey happening, but that's what I'm at. That's where I'm at right now. Yeah, I think it's just as important to show how exciting and fun polyamory is as to like how um, boring and normal it is too. you know, <laughs> like right. most of the nights I'm just hanging around knitting and watching Netflix with my husband, like a normal person, I guess. <laughs> but there are some, you know, hanging from the chandelier orgies, right? Like ever so often it happens At least right? before. <laughs> in the before times. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I want to say a little bit more about the solo poly thing. Um, I also identify as solo polyamorous and I was kind of caught by your concern. I think that people hear it as selfish. Like personally, I think of it as more adjacent to being single. Not that you don't have relationships necessarily, but single in like the traditional you're not married or engaged therefore your relationships don't get addressed at a certain level way like and not that it's the same as that but more adjacent to that in a solo poly means i haven't chosen to intimately bind my life to one of my partner's lives or i've chosen to prioritize focusing on my life or my friends and family, whatever that means to me over a particular romantic or sexual relationship or romantic and sexual relationships. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I, it never occurred to me to hear either single or solo poly as selfish. And so it sort of just caught my attention. Mm-hmm. You know what I think it is? I think it's that uh, I'm a woman um, and my, uh, my, we, we are socialized, I think, people who are socially reared women are inclusive. We are reared in this way that we, sh- that the onus to compromise is quite a lot, I think, quite a lot heavier. Um, and now that I'm actually thinking about it, I'm wondering if there is something in the solo polyamory label that really seems to appeal to um, women. Like, I, I don't know that I've actually met a sort of polyamorous man in, who has the identity quite so, so organized, like in the same way as me. So I'm wondering if it's a reaction to that in this characterization that I'm told that I don't want, I know that I don't want to have children, childless by choice. And I also know that I don't want to get married and I always have. But as I have gotten older, the weight of that and the backlash I get has become quite different. Like when you're, when you're 16 saying, I don't want to have kids, it's kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, they'll change their mind. Now that I'm 31, people are like, but you don't have much longer. And I'm like, it's not it, like, so what? It's not going to happen. Yeah, it doesn't matter. There's no oh, timeline. no. I don't have like, much longer to have to worry about birth control if I'm having heterosexual sex. <laughs> it's like having a coupon for something you have no intention of buying. Right? Like, I'm, I'm sober, I don't drink. And sometimes I'll get, like, a coupon in the mail for, like, wine. And I'm like, I don't, I don't feel the pressure to spend this. But if I was, if that was something I wanted, I would. So I, I do get it. And I feel like sometimes the the label of solo polyamorous, and I know so many solo polyamorous women, like there is loads of them. We're like, we're, yeah. we're, it's like an epidemic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally know so many, and they're always like the coolest, like most awesome people that they're, they're creating a lot of stuff. They're putting out content. They're super out loud and proud. But 
I'm wondering if this is part, like this idea that I have in my head of it being selfish is because of the things that are wrapped into that label are the things that I've been demonized for. Mm. I waited a long time to have a kid. And up until that point, I had never met someone that I wanted to have a kid with. So it really seemed impossible. So I was like, yeah, I don't want kids. It probably won't happen. You know, that kind of thing. And um, so I waited until I was 30 before I decided, oh, no, this, this seems like a good thing for me at this point in time. But before that, I had absolutely been called selfish for not wanting children. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm doing the world a favor. Like we're in kind of a fucked state right now. What are you talking about? Selfish. Exactly. This is selfless, not not adding to the world's problems by having another kid to it. You know, like, right. so I, I thought it was so strange that someone would think that that was selfish because I didn't want to, I don't know, like give up part of my life or my 20s or whatever, you know, to, to dedicate to another being. But so weird because you are not obligated to do, to do that. No one is <laughs> like, damn. I mean, that's but, the thing. We are like yeah. women like, are supposed to. Right. Yeah. Right. Like people who are socially read women are given this assumption from day naught and it's uh, it's taken, you know, many, gen- I mean, not many generations. We've only had birth control for like 50 years or something, but like it's taken a generation of women to really be like, oh, you don't have to do this. And even even now, obviously, still get pushed back, but I'm able to find a community, a millennial community of the childless by choice. Um, I'm able to find people that believe the same in me, like same as me. I'm able to advocate for myself in a way that I think would be very hard had I been 30 years older and having mm-hmm. this decision. Like I'm, I can say very clearly, this is not something I want. Here are the reasons why environment is one of them you just mentioned. Geopolitical mm-hmm. issues is another climate change like there are big things but there's also things like i really like getting up whatever i want yeah i really enjoy making my own food and eating. i love my life yeah that's right. like a good reason right i love right. my life like right I, now <laughs> i've worked really hard to make a life that i love every every moment of it uh broadly obviously i still have like my right, yeah. my bad days and my mental illness <laughs> like everyone else but i worked very hard to get to a point where if i really wanted to i could just go to mexico and sit on a beach Right. Like I don't have to do anything. Why would I now be like, okay, time to give all of that up (laughs) and have these kids because maybe in the future I would have wanted to have them. It's just, it's, it's really strange, but this so polyamory label wrapped in with this childless thing, I think maybe is one of the reasons why in my head it's characterized as something that is selfish, even if it's interesting that you haven't had that experience. And it may be, I mean, I think that the, the kids factor plays a big role into that, perhaps, because I became I chose to identify as solo poly after leaving a monogamous marriage and recognizing that I didn't want to have to compromise with another adult in that way where I wouldn't feel like I had control over my environment and not control over my children, but decision-making authority. I, you know, I don't want to, my kids don't need another person to have that in their lives. Like, um, but it does undercut that you're being selfish sort of argument that someone could have because I don't think 
single mothers are perceived as selfish. They may be perceived as other negative things, but selfish isn't really one of the labels associated with that. So I, I may have sort of been inoculated from that from that particular negative uh, association. Yeah, I feel like single mothers get the opposite, right? They're like giving all their all to the right. to the you know detriment of them having anything else to give, right? Like it's it's unfortunate. Single mothers really get shafted in America, I guess you know here, <laughs> right? So, yeah. yeah, here as well in the UK. There's there's a I remember growing up, you know, in the nineties, it's like well early two thousands. The single mother trope was like the butt of every joke. It was mm. very toxic looking yeah. back. Because single dads weren't getting that. Never. Like right, the guys, yeah. the guys that for some reason couldn't um, or didn't want to or weren't able to, you know, there's many reasons why somebody might not choose to parent. But they didn't get nearly the amount of flack that early 2000s daytime TV was dumping on young single mothers. Crazy. Insane. Like, right. and, right. you know, here is very different because healthcare is is nationalized yeah. here. So there is less of a uh, financial barrier, I guess, having, I don't know if people think about having children there as being something that's super oh, costly. Yeah. No, oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of memes that go around with millennials like, oh, why don't you want to have kids? Oh, because I cannot afford one person myself at all right now. So yeah, can't afford another person, can't afford to feed another mouth. Like that's absolutely not. An, and even just the process of having a birth, like, yeah, luckily, that's... I was on Obamacare when I had my kid because it would have been $40,000. And for me, it was like, because again, Obamacare helped me out there. Uh, it was like 1200 But even 1200 is totally unmanageable for a lot of people. But I had an emergency C-section. It was, you're in, you know, the OR. It's tons and tons of money. Forty grand. I was incredibly lucky that I had insurance at the time, but oh my god, so many people don't. Your, your viewers couldn't see that, but I just went like very wide eyed. Gasp! Yeah, when you said that. I was like, that 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 can't. That's just. It's that's yeah. Insane. Our healthcare system is insane. It's absolutely ridiculous. Horrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have to go on a tangent about that for a moment, actually, <laughs> okay, because I had excellent health insurance when my children were born. And when my youngest was born, I was uh, given a layoff notice from my job and I was about seven and a half months pregnant when the, that happened. Um, given that they were doing that, the company actually was as compassionate as you could be under those circumstances. So they set my layoff date out for two weeks after my um, my due date so that I would still qualify for short term disability insurance. And my first child was an unplanned C-section. Um, and then I was trying to decide whether I was going to try to have uh, a vaginal birth after C-section or whether I was going to have a, another C-section. I was working with these wonderful midwives who were like, you know, this is all up to you. We support whatever your choice is. And I found out that my short-term disability insurance would pay for two weeks more uh, if I had a C-section than if I had a vaginal birth. And so since I knew I was losing my job and I had no idea how long it would be before I was employed again, um, I chose to have a C-section. And I mean, that's insane. 
Like yeah, there's no the worst reasoning for a healthcare decision, but it was also completely logical under our barbaric U.S. healthcare system. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. Wait. So hold on a second. When you have a baby in the U.S., you qualify for disability. So we don't have any paid parental leave, and how companies provide paid parental leave at all for employees is if they offer short-term disability insurance, then um, pregnancy and postpartum can qualify you for short-term disability. And the standard for that is eight weeks of leave after a C-section or six weeks of leave after a vaginal birth. God. And that's if you have a good job. Right. I, I had, had a great job with great insurance. Yeah. And with benefits. Right. So I yeah. had a, a part time job at a retail store, which granted is a great job. I do love my job. I love my bosses, but they do not have um, they didn't have a lot of anything in the way of benefits, but they had vacation time and sick time. So I saved it up for a full year and was able to take I think it was two months. I used my pay time off in my vacation time and just lumped all those hours together and tried to spread them out. And, you know, some of those weeks were like, oh, they weren't, none of them were 40 hours. They were like 20 hours here, 13 hours there. You know, it was essentially like I was taking a lot of uh, sick days, unpaid sick days. And over the course of two months, I, I spread that out. Uh, but yeah, that was because I was able to save that up. And because my job offered uh, PTO, which a lot of jobs don't if you're not full time. So it's uh, it's a little bit of a hellscape here when it comes to having kids. So I don't honestly recommend it, like unless you really, really want it and you have either good health care, good job or your partner does. It's really difficult to have kids in America. And I don't know why anyone would call that selfish because you're literally not physically able to afford having a child here. You know, like it's. Right. It's so I've, I've lived in like a lot of different countries um, in my life, uh, over 40 of them at this point, um, you know, for various lengths of time. And some of them, I think, would be places that you might not expect there to be great healthcare, They're low middle income countries. All of them have maternity leave. Yes. <laughs> right. Yep. I think there are only like two countries, two countries in the world, U.S. included, who don't like have paid maternity leave. Right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Our system is completely fucked. <laughs> so this again, such a positive podcast. Really. Tangent. I know. Right. For whatever Sorry. reason. We're OK. Gonna get into back that on kind of track. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so our last question was like, where are you in your poly journey? And our, our follow up to that is where do you hope to go or what do you have as far as poly goals, if any? Great question. Do I have any goals or am I just winging it? <laughs> That's um, fair, too. Right. <laughs> so I think it's, it's very strange to be dating in your 30s. It's very, very different than uh, I remember it being previously. It's also very different to be dating without the couple's privilege that you have for having an existing partner. I mean, they're both ex they both require communication and everything, but if you already have a partner and you are protected financially and socially by your couple's privilege, it feels very different than when you're solo polyamorous and doing this. And I think this is a really... Um, untackled privilege that people are not talking about. People talk about 
white privilege, I think now with a, a higher degree of literacy about um, race and oppression and the intersections of that with other identifying subcultures and identities that someone might have. And people talk about like cis presenting privilege in trans spaces with, again, a lot of literacy. What I'm not seeing polyamory is any kind of understanding or basic literacy about couples privilege in this space because it's there and it's glaringly obvious when you're not in a couple. But most of the people that have the mics, most of the people that are creating, most of the people that have the privilege of being out and proud and making content and making resources, most of them are protected and allowed to do that because they have couples privilege in a way that some people would not be able to do, wouldn't be taking it seriously. There's a reason why Polypages is, is where it is because I started it with a partner, right? Like this was a project that I started with a partner who I was deeply in love with. We're both on the podcast. You can hear both our voices. And I don't think it would have had the same, I wouldn't have had the same security in being out and proud of doing this unless I had been protected by carbon's privilege in a way that was invisible to me until that privilege was taken away. So dating in the space post 30 plus this deconstruction of couples privilege. I think that's very important for the the next kind of few years. I want to get to a place where I have um, my own everything, essentially. Um, And then, you know, I am very open to then finding uh, maybe a primary partner and trying out hierarchy, which I haven't done before. Um, (laughs) The only only thing that I don't think I'd try is I don't think I'd try kitchen table polyamory which is, for those that don't know, this is um, a term used for a style of polyamory where everyone in the polycule knows each other and can sit down and cordially have a conversation at the kitchen table. It doesn't really appeal to me for a variety of reasons. So, but we'll see. My goals at the moment are about uh, the projects that I have going on, a couple of events that we have coming up, a couple of products that we want to offer, getting the podcast back up and running after a year hiatus and writing, writing a book. So I have a lot of, uh, you know, community focused stuff that I want to be doing that goes well beyond my personal polyamory. But I mean, the other thing is I, I've been doing this for a really long time, right? So I'm no longer thinking about this as being separate from my day-to-day life. Like it's, it's very interwoven. I'm very out. I have the privilege to be out. As I said, that's a privilege. It's not something that everyone can do. Um, so it's hard for me to be like, that's a goal for this part of my life, but not the others. So all mm. of these goals are also to do with my radical fight against capitalism and my, <laughs> my <laughs> very irritating feminism <laughs> and my left-wing ideologies and my climate action. All of these things are very interwoven in my head. So it is very hard for me to like pull out the polyamory thread and be like, this is the thing I'd like to do. Um, I think we'll just have to see, watch the space. I think um, it's going to be very interesting. That's That seems clear. Whatever it winds up looking like. I mean, I hope so. Now that now everyone will be looking, won't they? So <laughs> naturally this means I'll start, stop doing everything. <laughs> nah. So why do you think you are polyamorous? I believe that polyamory gives us one of the better lenses for understanding with a high degree of cultural nuance the way by which our relationships are normified or standardized. We have these um, 
these norms as that we've mentioned repeatedly throughout this podcast given to us about what we should be doing in our relationships and how we should look and polyamory offers us a lens not the only lens but one of i think the better lenses for deconstructing that and asking not just is this the only the only way to do things how could i do things differently but also why am i being told that this is how i should act why am i being told this is how i should love polyamory for me is important because it, it allows us to have those conversations it goes beyond how will I manage jealousy? It goes into like, why am I being force fed this particular ideal of a nuclear family? Where does this concept come from? Is there a reason why it came about after the industrialization period of history? Is there something in this that is radically anti-feminist that is being disguised and given to me under this romantic relationship norm? Polyamory is one lens for that. And it's been a very important, helpful one for me. And one that I will continue to use and focus in. It's not the only one. And obviously, you can be radically anti-mononormative and be monogamous. But I think that it you cannot interrogate those structures with the lens of monogamy. Because monogamy is a product of that particular agenda. And so it can only serve the values of that. That's an awesome answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming to my manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And our last, uh, our last question in the beginning of this, uh, the first part of our podcast, which is now over an hour, but that's okay. Um, why did you agree to be interviewed today? Well, I've been listening to your podcast since it started. I listen to, I make it my business to listen to every polyamorous podcast, but um, a lot of them, um, do a really great job of mixing in this standardization that you have plus um, nuance. And I think that these conversations are how we change cultural generally. Um, the sort of vision and mission of Polypages is empowering the conversations that we have to deconstruct normativity, And that is exactly what I think podcasts offer. They're free resources that are available uh, although you should definitely tip support and and subscribe <laughs> to your to your uh, podcast podcasters <laughs> um but they really are important and make up i think a very vital part of the fabric of the conversations that we're having these can't be conversations that are kept behind closed doors and between between two people maybe three maybe like one family we need to be having them at a level that's quite public so I really enjoyed the way, the format that you have. Um, and I generally just support podcasts in general. Nice. Well, thank you. This has been a really interesting conversation. And yeah. so I very much appreciate your uh, joining us. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Interested in more Polyamory Uncensored content? You're in luck. We just started a blog, polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com. We're going to be showcasing stuff like episode breakdowns, polyamory and ethical non-monogamy related book reviews, and guest posts from authors like you. If you'd like to be a guest author, contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com, and you might be able to see your work up on our website. Again, that's polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com, and we're going to have some fun, new, poly-related content for you. Thanks. See you there. All right. Welcome back. And we're talking to Claire today about uh, Polyamory Day. So what and when is Polyamory Day? 
So polyamory day is the, uh, the day, international day of celebration for polyamory. And it was started in 2011 when the British Columbia Supreme court in Canada ruled that, um, under their criminal code, it, Basically, it's not illegal to have more than two adults in a dwelling, right? I mean, there is some issues around that legal question still, but since that day, the November 23rd, that's been International Day for Polyamory. Uh, this year, we are making an event around that called Polyamory Day 2021, and that will happen on the weekend, so the 27th of November. And it's a digital showcase of polyamory and non-monogamy in the UK and Ireland. So it's an all-day online event with talks, debates, discussion forums, and social gathering spaces. And it's going to be facilitated by um, sort of the renowned creators, coaches, and authors in the UK and Ireland. Um, and we've been putting it together now for a while. We did realize that like they're just a lot of the polyamory conferences and stuff weren't running, or we weren't sure they would run because of COVID. And polypages runs almost well we run exclusively online events so this was kind of a natural space for us to grow into after running our events for nearly a year i kind of like turn up the dial and have it as a full day people can really get their money's worth <laughs> uh, the whole day will be recorded with the exception of the social gathering spaces we have three social gathering uh times with different um you know, themes uh, they won't be recorded so people can have like genuine conversations and message and stuff like that uh, but the rest of them will be recorded so if you get the day pass you'll also get access to all of the recorded content as well so if you decide to go to this discussion instead of this one that's fine <laughs> you'll be able to catch it again later um, and it will be happening as i said on the 27th of november um, i can give you guys some more information about the schedule yeah i would like. love to know like what kind of guests are you having Yes, we have um, we have a keynote speech from Thomas David Barrett. He's a professor from Oxford University, and he uh, is known for giving these twenty four hour lectures, which I am just like insanely in love with. Um, he makes he's such a great speaker. I mean, he really is. He's very eloquent, and he speaks a lot about the way that we as humans organize ourselves, um, and especially how diff like what what are the strategies that we use that are different now that we have longer lifespans. He's an evolutionary biologist. So he'll be giving our keynote. We then also have a, a couple of sessions about being black and poly in UK and Ireland. That's a panel discussion. Um, polyamory and the law with Miles Jackman. So Miles Jackman is, I think, the UK's foremost lawyer about sexual freedom and obscenity laws. Um, he is award nominated and he'll be giving a talk about law and polyamory in the UK. We also have a conversation on polyamory and neurodivergence with Leanne from Polyphilia and nice. Rachel Jane Cook from P-Therapy. So Leanne's on the spectrum and neurodivergent and Leanne is a therapist. So we're going to be having them having a, like a conversation about what, what po like how polyamory intersects with that diagnosis, what, you know, support and resources someone might need, um, and having a good old chat, basically, about that. Um, and in the in the last session, we have a comedian, polyamorous comedian, Kate Smurthwaite, will be sitting down to have a fireside conversation with me. We're going to actually have it by this fireplace. <laughs> nice. Oh, very nice. Cute. I know. Uh, she's really funny. And when we had our, our call, uh, we were like, 
we could have just recorded this. It was so funny. <laughs> it's like laughing so hard. Um, but yeah, she she is known for putting out a uh, 14 one-woman shows at this point and delivering stand-up all over the UK, including one of the shows, which is called Fornicatress, which is about her being polyamorous. So she's an open Oh, wow, that sounds hilarious. I love yeah. that name. <laughs> Um, and in addition to all of that, we have two skills building hours. So I'll be running the relationship anarchist boot camp. So if any of these terms that were in this conversation were like new or interesting, I'll be running a hour long boot camp about the relationship anarchist manifesto and the smorgasbord. Great, um, great word, <laughs> meaning kind of like a buffet or a charcuterie board. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and how you can action that in your life and we also have two coaches coming in to give another hour-long skills bidding session Roy Graff from Open Relating and Ro Moed from uh, Unapologetically uh, and these two coaches are going to come in and, and run a session on on um, one particular skills packet which I think is to be decided and finally, throughout the day, there's going to be three mixing spaces. So there'll be an under-21 mixer, which will be moderated by someone who's DBS checked, and will be for the 60 to 21-year-olds. There'll also be a BIPOC-only space, away from the white gaze, so uh, BIPOC attendees can go and discuss, you know, away from a place that might feel unsafe or uncomfortable. Um, and over lunch, we're going to have the breakout rooms by region, so you can come along and join that either your region or a region that you're going to go and visit and meet other polyamorous and non-monogamous people in that region of the UK and Ireland. So that's a full day. <laughs> that is a full day. It is a full day. <laughs> you get the recording of all of these things as well. So I'm happy that this is a good deal. Tickets start from £10 and cap at £20. And there's also the option to um, add a donation to our BSL fund for the hard of hearing. So as I previously mentioned, I am hard of hearing. Um, and it's very important to me that all of our events, Polypages and as Polyamory Day, um, that all of these are, are accessible. So closed captioning will be provided throughout. And if people would like to have an interpreter, we, we really want to make sure that people can have an interpreter. So there's also an option to pay into that fund and help to make sure this is accessible. Um, and as with everything, the, the ticket uh, has a sliding scale I could speak more about sliding scales because I love to speak about them, but I, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> That's really awesome. And how long have you said you've been organizing this? Um, I think the first the first idea for this was probably in like July. Um, and we actually, I think I actually reached reached out to people just after that. And there was some confusion about whether or not we should do it, uh, just because it's quite a lot of um stuff ended up happening over the summer right like suddenly lockdowns were lifted people were going to go and do things we weren't sure if there was still a market for this but then we decided that when it gets cold and people don't want to go out there might still be a value to this and as i said it's really important to me that there are accessible options for these community events and it's not accessible if you have to be physically in a place that costs money to get there if you're if you have social anxiety mental health issues a disability it's really really difficult to partake in that like i went to a drinks thing and it was so draining i was like drained for days afterwards um so it's really important to me that we still offer these forms of online engagement because they're accessible to everybody and i think the other reason for that is we have a really international audience at polypages um, from like all over the world and when you have something that's online it's equally accessible to someone that's in like the san francisco bay area 
I like, I don't know, bland tire in Malawi, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. But both people can attend and have the same experience, and that's really important to me. Yeah, that's really um, cool. I will add all of this. Yeah. It's all at www.polyamoryday.co.uk. Um, you can find everything there, the accessibility stuff, everything about the schedule, the speakers, and obviously get a day pass. It's up now. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing everyone there and to talking about the smorgasbord because that's like, I'll never not be happy to say smorgasbord. <laughs> it is a great right. I also love the, just the image of like a, polyamory charcuterie board where you're like i'm gonna take a little bit of this cheese and this cracker and mm-hmm. it's uh you know a little bit of solo poly a little bit of relationship anarchist you know what maybe i'll i'll date someone who's in a primary relationship and see how that goes mm. uh, but we're just gonna taste it you know <laughs> yeah. i love it <laughs> yeah we're gonna be using the the max hill depiction of it um I think he's made like five of them at this point. Um, but basically, it's with like, here are all of the things that your relationship can be, can include. Um, what of these do you want, not want? You know, like you might have something from the domestic pile, but you actually hate sleeping in the same bed. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, oh, so we need to get a place that's two bedrooms. Like it's a, it's a tool for conversation. So that that's what we're going to mm. be using during my boot camp. Um and yeah it's just it's got a great name (laughs) yeah yeah that's a great idea yeah having like a checklist oh my gosh i it's it seems so obvious that like you should know what you want before going in a relationship but how often do does anyone actually do the work of like figuring out what they want first instead of getting in a relationship and being like now can we mold this into what we both want oh we've never had this discussion all right uh (laughs) (laughs) Like, what do we do now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about making, like, a really big one, having it behind me when Mm. I teach it. Um, (laughs) Like a map of the world behind you. (laughs) Yeah. Relationship map, yeah. Exactly. Being, like, but I'll probably just use, like, mirror or something. (laughs) 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 Cool. Yeah, I do love how accessible like conferences are now. I went to one, can't remember the name of it now, but it was a sexual education conference uh, during kind of the middle of the pandemic, right? It was before vaccines even. So, um, and it was really great. I mean, unfortunately, it also ends up being like up to each person's internet connection and um, like, uh, do they have a microphone? You know, like how good the quality of the, not necessarily like what they're saying, how good the quality is, but like, can I hear them? Do they get cut out? You know, so of course, every every class or, you know, was a little bit different, right? Every workshop was a little bit different, but it was still really cool. And I could access it from my house in my pajamas. That was also really right. awesome. And yeah, yeah. So, I love that. I mean, we've been running online events for... Um, well, yeah, since January, we've run I don't know, half a dozen of them at this point and uh, worked with some really amazing people. And we have been asked, like, are you going to take this offline at some point? Um, and the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, not only because it would mean that only certain people can come, but also I would not be able to come because I have to move around a lot. So anything that I can't do for my laptops, like not going to work long term. Um, whether that changes in the future now that we're like a registered business, 
uh, starting a nonprofit and stuff like that. Maybe that will change. But at the moment, I'm really interested in maintaining that accessibility and make, maintaining that community that we have online because mm-hmm. there's really nothing like it. I mean, we've had people come in from like Nepal, which has a very strong culture of polyamory, um, come in from South Africa again different cultural contexts for polyamory, but a place where it's legal to marry more than one woman. Um, people who have come in from all over the world to these events, and it enriches their discussion in a way that if uh, if you, the you locate me physically, you automatically have homogeny like baked in. People are going to come that look very similar, that come from very similar backgrounds. So you're going to have less diverse ideas and conversations, um, which will cramp the style of the conversation a little bit so definitely if you have anything more you want to plug that would be totally fine i know you have the polypages podcast as well or but you said you're on hiatus or are you coming back soon uh so the polypages podcast i'm hoping to bring back next year um i'm uh it's on hiatus at the moment although you obviously can still find us on literally everywhere, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. Um, The first season goes through the actual slut, chapter by chapter, and adds updated resources, references, and critiques. And our ad hoc bonus episodes include uh, usually academic articles or book chapters or essays that have been contextualized, and we have a conversation with a guest host that comes on. You can also find our events at our website, which is polypages.org, which will also be in the show notes <laughs> and the the next events we have coming up after polyamory days we're planning on having one about alcohol and in polyamory about the way that alcohol shows up in our culture and our community uh in maybe less than ideal ways um and also about long distances in polyamory so long distance long distance relationships in polyamory which will be happening closer to december around the, the time that many people have different holidays although i personally don't celebrate them um and i think that those are the only finalized upcoming events that we have apart from that if you want to support us um on patreon you get access to all of our events for free um and you also get access to the kitchen table which is our monthly zoom meeting with all of our patreons uh, and i think patreon is like something ridiculous you know it's like three pounds a month or something <laughs> Um, I think that's everything else I want to plug. Obviously, I have other future projects coming up. Um, but at the moment, we're strategizing for 2022 with the rest of the team. So that's all, everything I can say for now. I'll Very definitely cool. let you guys know if I should come back on and be like, I also have a book. Right. Yeah. I was <laughs> going to ask, well, if you're working on a book, you know, let us know when you when you publish and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll have you back on to talk about your book. That would be great. All right. Yeah, awesome. Terrific. Yeah, I will get all of these links onto um, our our notes and and on our page. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on. This was a really fun and um, surprisingly political conversation, which I love. <laughs> fun and surprisingly political. I should have it on a t-shirt. Like, honestly, that's, like every day with me. It's like, it's fun, but surprisingly political. I'm like, yeah. I would totally buy that t-shirt. I would wear it too. Because actually, again, because I feel like now I don't have like blue hair anymore. Like I feel... Like I pass for very normal. I mean, I have a septum piercing, which is like super, I don't know, bi flagging, but whatever. Um, but Me like, <laughs> but um, otherwise, I feel like people just assume I'm normal and then we'll get in a conversation and they're like, oh, 
Okay. Wow. Whoa. You're not, this is surprising. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Relatable. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, All of us Midwesterners and we just like look all normal and we're totally not. So we all need this. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to write this down. We're going to have some, we're going to have some fun t-shirts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the questions I get asked a lot is like, when are you guys going to start doing merch? And I'm like, it's in the works. Yeah. But it's not here yet. Can't talk about it. Um, but yeah, yeah we don't I have do any often have either. these amazing t-shirt ideas. And I, I mean, I could just use it for my own personal dating life, right? Because every person that goes on a date with me has to read this book on queer theory and <laughs> the communist manifesto. And Oh my God, uh, I love it. Not I date. wanted, uh, for the longest time, I wanted my like main okay Cupid picture to be a me in a t-shirt that said like, you know, respect my no or something like that, you know, just anything or silence is a no, you know, something where I could be like, hey, I need some, I need to somehow show to all these people who are not reading my profile on the first picture some message that will get through to these numbskulls you know whatever but yeah i've never made a t-shirt for (laughs) that Mm. purpose yet but i mean all you have to do is when you start start chatting like throw in a throw in something Mm -hmm. my Um, friend used to do um what do you feel how do you feel about the welfare system and that would really weed out a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was thinking like way more subtle than that. More like, um, <laughs> okay, uh, I have decided that this is how we're going to go for a date and see how they take you just taking charge. Or like, uh, actually, I prefer if you didn't call me that, can you please call me this? And then see if they if they honor like yeah. basic stuff. Mm-hmm. Basic. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. yeah, having a T-shirt would probably make it quicker. Fun and surprisingly political. Although I actually think for me, it would probably be political and surprisingly fun. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That is fair. I'll make both. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I had the best time. Um, I hope Yeah, it was great. Good luck with the polyamory day activities and um, and all of the stuff that you're up to. Thank you. It's been so great to finally get to sit down with you. Yes. Have a good one. Bye. And that is it from us at Polyamory Uncensored. We have been Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams. We'd like to thank podcast husband Rob for being our sound engineer. And thank you, Lindsay, for editing this podcast so that we sound smart. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Polyamory Uncensored. Contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com if you have a listener question or a comment. And if you'd like to support us at all, you can send us a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash polyamoryuncensored and simply click on the support this podcast button. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one-time contribution, we've set up a PayPal link to make it super easy. Thank you for your support in any amount at paypal.me slash polyamoryuncensored. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and remember, we love you. Bye.